0: Yeah, yeah, let me turn it on. on. <laughs> okay.
1: What chapter are we doing? Three. No, there's no more yeah. time there. Can I there right right? Yeah, You could, but it's going to be very tricky yes. to follow along.
2: Cool. I'll share. I have like,
1: What happened to your time? I never had a time. You never had a time. Yet. You're no. using the Well okay. Yeah, Make cool. it. Okay. Um. okay, we'll take a copy. Okay. <laughs> few things. First off if you could put your smartphone in the basket, that will help me. Otherwise I won't be able to teach. My therapist says that um, I have to be honest about my own failings <laughs> and I'm incapable of teaching with the knowledge that people have smartphones readily accessible. Okay. Do you guys think I should listen to my therapist? Yeah.
2: No. No? Does he have
0: a certificate?
1: <laughs> okay. Maybe not. Okay. Um, Okay, so this, I don't know what they call this class on the schedule, but in this class we learn Tanya, unless otherwise stated. What is it called on the schedule? It's called Chsidis. okay, well, that works. I appreciate your disregard for it. Okay, so I'm encouraging everyone to purchase their own Tanya, to purchase the bilingual edition because this is the one that we are using. My note has a few copies, but not enough for everybody. And my note does not make copies. This is until you get your own Tanya. So this is the one and only copy that I'm making. I mean, actually, a few copies here. I'm saying, like, I'm not... When we turn the page, by that point, you have to have your own book. Or I hope that enough people have their own books that the few ones that uh, my note owns are available to be used. So if you don't have a copy... Okay. So... What we're going to be doing is we're going to be learning Tanya. Now, we're going to be working in the English translation. I think that just makes it more accessible to everybody. Plus, as you get along, I always have notes and comments to make about how things are translated anyway. So, we're going to be starting from Chapter 3. Does anyone know why we're starting from Chapter 3? But that's not fair to the people who weren't here for chapters 1 and 2, is it? we're not going to spell that. <laughs> we are starting to chapter 3. So, that, so why, why would we start from chapter 3 if some of the people here did not learn chapters 1 and 2? It's a review
2: of the last two like,
1: yeah. No, because if we started from chapters 1 and 2, then it would be fair to the people who were here before.
2: Right.
1: Right. So we're at an impasse. So... I figure it's easier to try and bring people up up to speed who weren't here than to do the same thing again for people that were here. Um, But that does mean that obviously people that start from the beginning get more out of something, but you can feel good because eventually new people will come and they won't have been here for chapter three and you'll get more out of later chapters than they will. Um, I guess you could stick around for another six years and we could finish the whole thing, but at the rate we're going that's about how long it'll take.
2: Okay. A little faster. We
1: turn the page much slower.
2: Yeah.
1: Okay, so what I'm going to do for today is I'm going to do a very quick overview of what the Tanya is, what the purpose of the book is, and the key ideas that we need to know going into chapter three. Um, If something isn't clear and you don't understand, by all means, ask a question. Keep in mind that I might not answer it prerogative. Once we've finished All of that Whatever time is left We'll start chapter 3 Good? Okay So the Tanya Was written By Abishner Zaman of Liadi Who was the first Rebbe of Chabad Do you know how he got the position Being the first Rebbe of Chabad? He invented Chabad So just by default You're, st- you're the founding member. You get to be the first leader. So, that's how it works. Getting to be the second leader, that's a little more contentious. Okay. So, the, the purpose of the book is to explain a verse. And the verse is um, that this thing is very near to you. Um, in your mouth and in your heart to do it. So now this thing is a reference to Judaism and near means that it is attainable. It is within a person's ability. Near does not mean the same thing, as easy. So um, something that requires someone else to do something on your behalf cannot be considered near to you because you need to use an agent, you need need assistance. Something that is within your abilities, that's considered to be near. So if we wanted to make make that physically for a second, we'd say, Something that is in space is not near to you because you need a rocket ship to get there. If something is across the sea, it's not near to you because you need a ship. Something that is a hundred miles away but over land can be considered near to you. Why?
2: Yeah.
1: What? Because you, you can walk there. right? You don't need anybody to take you there. You don't need anything beyond. you. You have the ability to get there on your own. So nearness here means within one's ability, not something that is easy or something that is physically close. The idea is that Judaism is within every single Jew's ability. Now, the difficulty in this verse, which is why it warrants a whole book, is the verse says that that nearness, that, um, uh, that um, attainability, is not just in Judaism as it's practiced with our behavior, with our actions, with our words, which I think that's fairly obvious. Anybody has the ability or any any mentally competent adult has the ability to control their behavior, control their words, which is why we hold people accountable for their actions and for their words. But the verse says it's also near in one's heart, and that's not so obvious. How can you say that it is attainable for each person to have an emotional connection to Judaism? Some people connect and some people don't. Some people are aroused and some people are not aroused. And so the idea of the entire book of the Tanya is to help explain in what way Judaism is emotionally compelling and in, in, in what way that's attainable and available to each person using their own natural abilities without any um, outside assistance. So that's the purpose of the book. And it's considered to be the central book of Hasidus, um as in the Chabad tradition. Now, the approach of the book is annoying. Okay. In what sense is it annoying? There are thing, many times we would like quick solutions to difficult problems, and when someone tells you that there are no quick solutions to difficult problems, <coughs> that something is going to require a lot of effort, and it is going to require a holistic approach, and it is going to take time, and only then will you actually achieve what you want to achieve, We you actually solve what you want to solve. We find when some people tell us that, usually we find that annoying especially when we're young. However, that's the approach of the Tanya. So for the first, um, let's say, depending on how you want to count it, but let's be, let's be conservative and say, for the first 11 chapters, the Algebra doesn't tell you how to do anything. It doesn't give any advice. All he does is describe in other words, you can't tell somebody how to begin solving a problem if they don't really know what the problem is. And you can't know what the problem is unless you know what the, correspond- the, 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 the component parts are. So if you want to think of it like this, you shouldn't be diagnosing people's medical conditions um, unless you know something about medicine. And you probably don't learn things about diseases unless you understand how the human body is supposed to work in a healthy manner, which requires you to have a good understanding of human anatomy. So what do you do your first year of medical school? Um, what? You learn how you learn about anatomy, right? You don't learn how to diagnose any diseases. So the first whole part of Tanya is about learning about the anatomy of a Jew, the spiritual anatomy, the psychological anatomy of a Jew, and the anatomy of Judaism, and the anatomy of the world, and how all these things can interact. And then once we can identify what the real problems are, only then does Alta Begin start prescribing approaches to actually solving the problems using our own innate abilities. Okay. For our purposes, in chapter one we learned an important idea, which is that every Jew has two souls. Okay. Does someone know what a soul is? First off, has anyone never heard the idea that a Jew has two souls? I'm not asking if you agree with I'm just saying has anyone never heard of this idea? So no one's raising their hand that means everyone's heard of it. Okay. Has anyone everyone heard of this idea longer than two days ago? Because you've known about this for more than two days. So, okay. So that means for at least two days, everyone in this room has heard this piece of information that Jew has two souls, which means I'm sure all of you had at least some understanding of what the word soul meant when you heard that idea, because you had at least two days to Google what, is, what do they mean by soul, and you didn't do that. So someone wanted to volunteer what soul means? This is especially embarrassing for me because there are people who were here <laughs> for, t- for two, three months and we talked about it and they don't remember, but that's okay. It just shows how bad I am as being an educator. Yes? The essence of a person. What follow-up question am I going to ask you? Good. Do you have an answer to that? Okay, who you are when you strip away everything else. What about you is you? That's okay. That's good. So then, what does it mean that you have two souls? By that logic, using those definitions, sure. <laughs> I guess that means if you we keep stripping things down, there be how many of you? Okay. Yeah.
0: Two souls are two different sources of vitality.
1: Okay. What is vitality? I have a thing about like. fancy words. I like them as long as we know what we mean by them.
0: Life, being alive.
1: Being alive. Two different sources of being alive. Yes. Like or it's life. like you. What, what, you mean like it? What, you mean like if if you if you detach the soul from the body, then this body just dies, and it's like a battery for the body. Is sure. that what you mean?
2: Sure.
1: Yeah. No. First answer is much better.
2: <laughs>
1: okay. Yeah. Okay. The, uh, the vitality is not just the fact. Vitality, if you want to think of it using, using um, English words, there's a difference between merely surviving and thriving and flourishing. Mm-hmm. Right? So if the body isn't collapsed as a corpse, that doesn't necessarily mean you're thriving and flourishing, right? Okay. So if you mean life as preventing you from being a corpse, then no, that's not what a soul is. A soul is not about life in that sense. But if you mean life in the sense of thriving and flourishing, then yes, the soul is the source of one's vitality, the source of one's thriving and flourishing.
0: Is it not also the corpse thing? Like, don't we say that when a person is dead, it's because their soul has left their body?
1: So, are there souls in heaven? Yes. Okay. What? I agree with silly. You yeah. could say yes, it's okay. There are souls in heaven. Okay. So, would it be fair to say that in heaven there's a, bunch of, there's a bunch of body batteries? Like, you know, you have a car shop and cars have batteries. And then in the car shop, there's like a rack where there's a bunch of car batteries there and they're just hanging out there. Is that like what heaven is? There's a bunch of batteries for bodies? No, no metaphysically. In other words, that what a soul is is nothing other than the thing that makes the body move around. Because so we want to be very careful we want to be very careful between statements which are technically true, but, are, but fail to capture the idea. Right? We wouldn't want to say um, that you are the source um, of raccoon food. But if you live in North America, by living in cities, you actually are responsible for providing raccoons food, right? But, and, and it's technically true, but if someone just said, well, that, that's really what defines you know, you as a human being or a human society in general, right, we'd say they kind of missed the point. So it is true that when a soul is in a body, the body is a body and the body can move. But that's not what the soul is. The soul is, the soul is, is a being of thriving and vitality and flourishing, okay? which it tends to be what we think about when we talk about going to our deepest selves. We're looking for that part of ourselves that the more we're in touch with, the more that we feel that we're thriving and flourishing. Right? We generally, when we have all of these layers covering over, we tend to feel rather um, constrained, um, somewhat hollow inside. And then if we can somehow get past them, break them down, make them more transparent, then there's this sense of being more um, alive, more present. There's somehow more being there. Okay? And that's true whether the soul's in the body or the soul's in heaven. The soul the soul can live in a body the soul can live outside of a body it's it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a it's a it's a being that the more it's present the more there's a sense of 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 self growth and fulfillment and thriving and flourishing now the problem is when you say you have two souls that run that means that how many ways do you have to thrive and flourish? Two. And that can mean that if one is thriving and flourishing, what, that, that runs the possibility that the other one is in fact suffering. Okay. So imagine, this is a silly analogy, but imagine that you um, attached a chimpanzee to a dolphin and they could not separate themselves from each other. Okay that would create some problems. Because what kinds of activities and environments enable a dolphin to thrive, enable a dolphin to flourish, are not so conducive to a chimpanzee, right? And then vice versa. Which means in the first chapter we learn this idea that it's not simply that there is a deeper, truer self that we have to be in touch with and then there's this other stuff. But in fact that there is a conflict over kind of who we should identify being. Which version of ourselves do we want to be? Because if one is setting the terms of the thriving and flourishing, then the other one is going to have to um, take a back seat, or vice versa. You can't have it again. You cannot. You cannot. um, You cannot work out a compromise between those two things. Now, this is different than the idea saying that you have a good inclination and an evil inclination. Because a good inclination, even inclination, is something is or urges towards behaviors. Okay, so for instance, okay, um, if you really annoy me, which is unlikely, but let's say you really annoy me, and I feel very very angry. Okay, what is what are some of the actions that anger tends to cause people to do? Tends to elicit to prompt people.
2: Screaming.
1: Screaming. Okay, let's go with that. So if you make me very angry, I will probably, it's quite likely, that I'll feel an urge to scream. Okay? It's a possibility. Let's go with that. Now, is it possible that I also feel some sort of incentive or not to scream? Some sort of inhibition against the screaming? Okay? Is that coming from the anger? Where might that be coming from? My conscience. My sense of the right and wrong. Okay sense of other people, sense of decency, right? Okay. Now, would we say that my anger and my sense of decency in other people are competing over in which one of those is really the key to my thriving and flourishing? In other words, if I take a half a step minute of reflection, I think about it. When, if I'm filled with rage and allow my rage to go, come over myself and, 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 and dictate how I live my life, am I going to be thriving and flourishing? Am I going to feel like I'm more thriving and flourishing? As a person? No, I think most people realize that. I don't need to get to any deep metaphysics, right? Which is why usually if you can you know, do any of these things like count to 10, make a deep breath, right? Pause and reflect, take things, zoom out a little bit. You get a perspective that the incentive not to scream is probably more in my interest than the incentive to, than the motivation to scream, right? Now, we're not always so good at that, right? That's to do with all sorts of things, age, maturity, how serious the issue is, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, that's not a conflict over what, under what conditions I thrive and flourish. That's a conflict over how short-sighted I am versus how um, broad-minded I am. How much I'm stuck in the moment versus how much I'm taking things in in a holistic way. Okay? So that's a different, an evil inclination is an inclination to do things that are bad. And upon reflection, you realize that they're bad. You can even realize that they're bad for you. So an evil inclination is not really a soul at all. Okay? And a good inclination would be the inclination to do things that are ultimately for your benefit. Now, since you know usually what's your benefit is not at the expense of other people's benefit, give me an example of something where we can see that usually what's in your interests are not at the expense of other people's interests. That most things in life are win-win. Give me an example where, where that's pretty clear. Yeah. Eating well. If I eat the food, then you don't have the food to eat. So how's that win-win? How's it? What's in my interest is also what's in your interest.
2: Littering.
1: Yeah, but how's that in both of our interests?
2: Recycling.
1: Recycling. Okay. A why don't you like think? Wh- why don't you think like more everyday kinds of things?
2: Relationship.
1: Saying hello. Saying hello. Right. Imagine a world where everybody doesn't say hello. Who's better off? Nobody. Now imagine a world where everybody says hello to each other,
2: <laughs>
1: right, off, right? There are a few things, like, like, like when there's a limited amount of food and everyone is starving, then it really is a question of, you know, my, what's good for me might not be good for you. But most of the things that we actually value in life have this quality of being relation, of having relationships. They're social, which means it. generally speaking, even when there's really serious conflict, if you can step out of it and think, think more broadly, usually what's in your long-term interests are often going to be beneficial to other people as well. Okay. So a, two inclinations are not really about thriving in two different ways. It's about having the awareness of what's really good versus not having the awareness of what's good. Two souls is a very different idea. Two souls means that there is something in me which thrives under certain conditions and suffers or might even die under other conditions. And then there's something else that thrives under entirely different conditions. And those two things, they're, it's not a simple matter of reflecting and realizing what's ultimately in my interest. Those two things are prime or fundamental drives. Okay? They make us the kind of person, the kind of being that we are. And if there are two of them, then means there's a conflict over what makes me me? And when am I and what what means being my true self and what means not being my true self. And there's apparently two possible answers to that that lead in two very different directions in life. That's the key idea that we need to know from chapter one before we move on to chapter three. Uh-huh. You you asked me that, and I said that I would get to we would get to it later around okay. chapter thirteen.
2: <laughs>
1: well, I know. Okay. Yeah.
2: I'm having a hard time understanding like the difference or the what you said about evil inclination and good inclination and like how that's the the main difference between that and the two souls.
1: So. going back to the I, I'm being vague because we don't because in chapter one we don't get very much information about what differentiates between right, right. but because, let's use the analogy of the chimpanzee and the dolphin right if the chimpanzee makes a good argument as to why they shouldn't spend all of their time in the ocean right is the chimpanzee doing something wrong doing something against its self-interest no, no. if the is it being short-sighted no no Is the fact that the dolphin is not willing to... It it, it doesn't find the chimpanzee's arguments compelling because the chimp... Because the um, dolphin is being short-sighted or not taking into account its self-interest. What's the issue between the two of them? The issue between the two of them is there's something actually mutually incompatible. And so there really is a true question of dominance. Mm -hmm. Who's going to live the life they want to live and who's going to be dragged along whether they like it or not, right? But... In the case of like being angry, that's really not the case. The part of me that's angry is the part of me that even, even I can, right? Even the part of a person that's angry, the more you can step back and, and think about it in a more broader perspective. You can realize it's not even good for you. The, it's like, how could they do this to me? And they think, well, how am I doing this to myself, right? right? I'm not helping my situation by being more angry.
2: So which is that?
1: So so what you can see is that when you talk about things that are that are sort of, labeled the evil inclination versus good inclination, the source is the same. is that I want to thrive and flourish. Just one part of me tends to have a very short-sighted, very um, simplistic and often wrong approach to that. We'll call it the evil inclination. One of those tends to take a broader, deeper, more holistic view and realizes that what's good for me has to be viewed in the long term, take into account that I'm a social being, take into account that I live in a society, that I care about other people, and then think about what's in you know, my interests. But the idea of two souls means that there's fundamentally two different sets of interests, two different agendas, two different life um, aspirations. And the fulfillment of one might mean the relinquishment of the other. And, there, and, 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 and that kind of a challenge is, is, is ultimately means that there's a, there's a, there's a as the author is going to say later on in chapter 9, that actually means it's a war.
2: Okay.
1: It's not just upon reflection I could change it. There really is a true conflict there.
2: Yeah. Are you in
1: mind that there is always the true conflict or that. It- That's the status quo. Now, con- Now, the, it could be that something can happen to, 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 um, ch- to change that. Okay, so what the author is going to do, and this is what we're going to get to, is that ch- chapters, in chapter two, um, three, four, and five, we're going to be learning about the godly soul and its side of the equation. And then in chapters six, seven, and eight, we're going to learn about the other soldiers known as the animal soul and its side of the equation. And then in chapter nine, we're going to put those together and see the conflict. And then in chapters 10 and 11 and 12, we're going to see how that conflict can resolve itself in different ways. Some of those grow quite wonderfully and some of those quite tragically. Right? In a war, sometimes the wrong side wins. Yes. Would it be correct to say that an inclination is like how I act and what I do and the soul is like who I am and what motivates me to do it? Close. I would just amend it that an inclination is what, m- m- what moves me to act in a certain way rather than the action itself. But And labeling the inclination as good or bad has to do about more the kinds of actions it's drawn to rather than what, what's its really underlying goal. So the idea is that, there's, that if you were to ask, well, what, what ultimately really drives you as a Jew? The answer is well, actually, there's two things driving you and they're not always driving you in the same direction.
2: Okay?
1: Um, then to flesh that out, we move to chapter two. So chapter two says that the second soul, the reason it's the second soul, it's the one that you become consciously aware of later in life. The second soul is called the godly soul. And the reason it's called the godly soul does anyone have a guess why it's called the godly soul because it's a tiny little part of god right so god is like a chocolate cake because of course god would be chocolate
2: <laughs>
1: obviously, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> if god would be a flavor god would obviously be chocolate um, and god then cuts off little parts of himself and gives one a little part to each and every jew Generous. Okay. what you don't like that why not then God gets tiny right, so that's obviously not what that means. and chapter two is about explaining that no, what it means a godly, what it means that the godly soul is a part of God is in the same way that a child is part of their parent. Okay now this is in a very specific sense, so I'm going to give a a, um, a quick overview of the idea, okay. Everything has, we use this fancy word already, everything has its essence. Its essence means what makes it what it is. Okay? So why is this a cup? So this is going to be annoying, but it's true. It has a cup. It, this is a cup because it has the essence of a cup. And you say, well, what is the essence of a cup? We'll call it cupness. Okay. Now, then we could debate what exactly is cupness. What is the essence of a cup? We're not going to do that because this is not a philosophy class. Okay. Or, or you know, law school. Okay, um, but something is what it is because it has something about it that makes it that. Right? And every cup has it has the essence of what it is to be a cup. Now, but there is more to this than just the essence of being cup and just cupness. This cup is made of paper. This cup is a certain size. It's a certain color. It's in a certain location. Right? It has certain advantages. For instance, it's really good for drinking hot liquids. Right? And being convenient. It might not be so good for the environment. I don't know. You have to ask somebody who knows these things. Um, it also is not exactly the most appealing cup. In terms of its, you know, if you wanted to make a fashion statement with your cup, I don't know if this would be the one you would you pick. Right? Um, so this fact that there's a reality to the cup is what's known as the existence of the cup. So the essence of something is what makes it be what it is. And the existence is the manner in which it's actually present in reality. So features of existence are things as trivial as where and when something is, size and shape, color. These are all aspects of physical existence. But the ways in which the thing can be interacted with, found, related to. Versus the essence is that point, that core of what makes the thing what it is. Now, yeah?
0: Is a thing not sometimes made what it is by the way people interact with it? (sighs) Meaning... Like, if a child took that and made sandcastles with it, it could arguably be a bucket. And then, like, to that child, and maybe to the child's whole family, that, that is a bucket, and it's not a cup, because then you can't drink out of it after it's had
1: sand in it. So, so there is an ancient, ancient philosophical question, which is, what is the nature of essences? In other words, are essences things independent of the existence, our essences arise from the existence, our essences are products of the mind of the observer. Right, okay. that's what I'm asking. I am not getting into that question. Okay. Um, the reason why I'm not getting into the question is that we just need to be familiar with this distinction in order to understand chapter 2 of Tanya, not cups per se. If you would really like to know the Torah's view of cups, I recommend learning the laws of Shabbos, specific laws of Muksa, and then you can see what God's view is about essences of objects. Now, how many parents does a person have? And parents, I mean people that actually conceive the child, not people that raise the child. Two. Okay, now, the reason for this is that, as is understood in Kabbalah, the different parents are actually supplying different aspects of the child. So let's start with the mother. What is the mother supplying? The existence of the child. In other words, it is the mother's body that actually makes the child exist. Right? So what is it that means that after nine months, you have arms and legs and a brain and eyes and all of those things? That's the respo- that is the responsibility. that is the contribution of the mother. So then what then is the contribution of the father? if we're going to think about this metaphysical distinction, is that the father is responsible for the essence. Now, people often hear that and are immediately predisposed to thinking that implies a certain superiority of the father over the mother. So I'd like to refer you back to the cup. If I say I have the essence of a cup, but, but it, the cup doesn't have any size or shape, it's not in a particular place, is that a very useful cup? Essences that are just pure essences, what are they worth? Zilch, which means what is the fa- what what the father has, what the fathers contributes in and of itself is worth. That's right. Okay? The idea here is that these are complementary roles. So the idea is that the father is the house houses the essence of the being, what makes that being the kind of being it is, and the mother is what makes that being into a reality. Okay? That's what that's the metaphysics according to Kabbalah of how conception works. Which is why regarding certain issues in Judaism we take the lineage to the mother, and certain lineages we take the lineage to the father. I'm not gonna get into the, what those differences are. Using that as an analogy, okay, the kind of being you are is a continuation of the kind of being that the father is. So, if your father is a goldfish, then what are you?
2: A goldfish.
1: And are you more or less goldfishy than your father? You're the same. Now, the way in which that comes out, the way that you exist, you might be a larger goldfish or a smaller goldfish or a different color goldfish, maybe more aggressive goldfish, but, but those are just variations on the theme of being a goldfish. Okay, what if your father is a person?
2: You are a person.
1: And if your father is God?
2: You are God.
1: That's right. So what it means of godly soul is that the father of the soul is? God. Which means the godly soul is just as godly as? So whatever is an accurate description of God would also be an accurate description of the godly soul. Does that mean all godly souls are the same, though? No, just like not all people are the same, because how the person exists depends on the contribution of the, first, the, the actual mother through the gestation and then ultimately through the outside environment. And similarly, every godly soul it's, comes into existence through a slightly different path, and therefore, although all godly souls are equally godly, they manifest that godliness in different ways.
2: Yeah. Can you give an example of like what the father gives and what the mother brings to reality?
1: So I like how you put what the mother gives brings to reality. If it's in reality, it's the mother. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Now the question is what's in reality is the father. So for instance,
2: I'm like going
1: I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, to use an extreme example To illustrate the point okay? It is not, at least as far as Judaism is concerned Morally equivalent to kill an animal And to kill a person okay? Why? Well, because what it is to be a person Is not the same thing as what it is to be an animal right? That fundamental difference Is actually because of the father But the fact that there's actually A person here to talk about Or a dog or a cat here to talk about Is actually because of the mother So the, the what makes the soul godly, is that God is its father. What makes the soul exist, is a process, um, in which God would actually then be playing the role of the mother. So we want to speak. This is why we refer to God as our father. um, Is because when we're talking about God being, the source of the kind of being our soul is, that our soul is as godly as God is, in that sense he plays the role like a father. The fact that our souls actually exist in reality and can actually interact with the world and do stuff, in that sense God would actually not be considered our father, God would be considered our mother. So it's just as accurate to say God is a mother. It is and it depends on the context in which you're referring to. Yeah. And in the Zohar is filled with this. We speak about God. We speak actually different levels of God. The upper mother, the lower mother, right? Now, where, which, ver, which thing shows up depends again on specifically what is a focus here. Okay. So the first thing that we need to know about this godly soul is that godly is not a metaphor. Hmm. Um, that it's, oh, it's very good. It's very moral. No, no, no. It's godlike. Whatever are distinctive aspects of what it is to be god those things are also distinctive aspects of what it means to be the godly soul (laughs) and even though different souls vary in how they manifest that those are like the variations of different parts of a person's body or between one person and another but at their core they all have the same human essence okay so that's the key ideas that we need to know from chapter two all right and we still have a half hour to start chapter
2: three
1: (gasps) okay so, chapter 3, we are going to start talking about um, the godly soul in reality. Okay. Now, I'm going to start with a metaphor. Okay. There was a joke that used to be around in Israel... Okay. Which um, I don't think you'll find this funny, but it illustrates the point. Okay. You might not find this funny both for moral reasons and you might not have to be familiar with the background. Okay. Oh,
2: okay.
1: I just wanted everyone to be aware they shouldn't laugh. Or maybe they should laugh, maybe they find it funny. But the joke was what does Ariel Sharon and a carrot have in common? So Ariel Sharon was the former prime minister of Israel. Um, oh gosh! And the answer is that they 're both vegetables
2: yeah <laughs> right. right that was a very I told you it was,
1: it was it was a joke that was very popular in Israel for a long time because he was in a coma or something like that I think it was called a vegetative state um, and he was also extremely controversial, so when you take a controversial political figure and um, they 're in a vegetative state they that does open the opportunity for jokes, especially in a society like Israel where um, very few things are sacred. Okay, now, joking aside though, w- what exactly is the underlying logic of of the joke? I mean, it, it, it is either funny or not funny, but there is some reason why you, why the comparison works. There
0: are two different meanings of the same word.
1: There are two different meanings of the same word, so it, it's just it has just a pure homonym, like which and which, or weather and weather. No, that then it wouldn't. I mean, those jokes are, are usually much more corny. This this there's something more to it. Why actually do we call somebody in a vegetative state being in a vegetative state? Why is it called a vegetative state? Like they ran out of words in the dictionary. It's like hurricanes. They just randomly pick words to it's name not them. Not a
2: human. We're not aware of consciousness. It's not a human. No, we're not aware the of the consciousness. Is
1: not a human. The carrot is not a human. Right. In what way do vegetables exist? Well. They metabolize, right? They have cells, right? Um, do they have mobility? Not in what regular every human people call mobility. Not if you do time lapse photography. Like, when was the last time you saw a carrot like get up and walk around to the place where there's more water and sunlight? Every night. <laughs> okay, it doesn't usually happen, right? So, okay, unless you're unless you're watching some cartoons or taking way too much acid. <laughs> Oh, usually, that's not something you see. Actually, I take that back. You don't need to take that much acid to see the carrots gritting up and moving. Oh, yes?
0: I mean, by that logic, though, it could easily have been just as easily have been like a fruit state. It could. Okay. Okay. Now, we're not distinguishing between vegetables and fruits here.
1: Correct. Back. Now, it's even funnier in, in Hebrew because the actual word for, for, a, for a plant and a vegetative state is actually the same word. Tzamech, which means something that grows. So, um, you know, in, 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 at least in American English, I think we, we have this term vegetable, which has come to mean things that, you know, you don't want to eat as a child. Or possibly, you know, according to botanists, something else, which I've never exactly clear on exactly what makes a vegetable, according to botanists. Vegetables not,
2: doesn't exist in botanists. Okay,
1: good. Does so it doesn't doesn't exist, exist in botany. So it's a culinary thing. Fine. <laughs> but the Hebrew word... Um, um, tzemach, which comes in order um, to grow, like as in to physically get bigger. Um, so plants are tzemachim, and, uh, um, and, and the actual term for someone in a vegetative state in, in, in Hebrew is a tzemach. Okay, Tzemach. No. Oh.
2: Sorry? <laughs> no. Nope. But you're on to something. What it,
1: what, why, is the, why is the third Chabad Rebbe called the tzemach tzedek? The growth of justice. That's what like, the term means, growth of justice, the name of his book. Yeah. Mashiach um, yeah, is called Semach David, the outgrowth of King David. Okay. So the idea is that there are things that they're, what differentiates them or what categorizes them is the fact that they metabolize, they eat, they, they process, they grow, right? And that's basically what we call a vegetative existence. Well, in the ancients and in Torah we classify things as part of the vegetable kingdom. Or the plant kingdom, if you want to call it that, right? And when a person, um, medically, all of the functionings that differentiate them, um, at least on a, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a very basic level, when you look at them, all the functions that differentiate a person from the kind of existence that a carrot has are gone. They're not mobile. They're not emotive. They're not experiencing, as far as we can tell, desire, memory, awareness, any of the things that, are, that, that make animals or people distinct from plants. And so they exist in this plant-like state, and hence the term. Okay. Now, why is it insulting to call someone a vegetable? We do have an idea of a hierarchy, and, and we, we tend to think that people are higher than vegetables, which is why you know, most people, don't consider eating carrots to be a morally important. Act, right? Some people think eating cows is morally important, but nobody, th- to my knowledge, not nobody. There are very few people who think eating carrots is morally important. What? You no, know, my dad is kind of crazy, and he used to like, think that he
2: like wouldn't eat root vegetables, and he like. I'm making you sound so crazy. He wasn't on drugs, but he would say
1: By the way, I, ju- I would just like to point out that according according to according Whoa. to, to Chassidus, um, even stones have some kind of life, and uh. so they get quite offended if you walk on them and aren't fulfilling your divine duty. Like, what gives you the right to walk on me? So, by that logic, your father's onto something. Yeah. <laughs> like, if you're gonna yeah. eat the, if you're gonna eat the root vegetables, you know, for the sake of heaven, fine. But if you're just doing it to be indulgent, what gives you the right to destroy their existence? But okay, um, yeah. But most people, like I said, <laughs> most, mo- most people don't, don't think there's anything morally wrong with eating carrots. Um, but I think most people have the intuition that if, God forbid, someone was in a vegetative state, there would be something wrong with ending their life, right? Well, why? Because we have the sense that although the existence in practice might be more or less the same, Right. There just exists. They they, both the cat and the person are just metabolizing. There isn't much else going on. We have the sense that there is an underlying essence to the human being that gives that existence a value that maybe is not being revealed. So we think that there's a value in that person's continued existence because there's something in there that we call the human essence, the human life. So what that means is that there's this. There's something being present, but not actually existing as itself. And that's really what a person is in a vegetative state. It's a person. And therefore, you know, the person in a vegetative state, um, according to Torah law, they're a full-fledged person. They have all the legal rights and responsibilities of a person. But they can't manifest any of them. So a person in a vegetative state owns property. A person in a vegetative state is still married. A person in a vegetative state, if you kill them, God forbid, you're a murderer. Blah 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 blah. But what about their humanity is actually revealed in their existence in their reality? And the answer to that is nothing. Right? If you look at them, there no they're, you know not much is different than what's going on inside a plant. Yeah. Do they
2: still have obligations? They still even
1: to no, because there's a rule that you can only be oblig- obligated to do something that you're capable of doing. So it's always it's very easy to get out an obligation just being impo- incapable of doing it. and you are not obligated. Um. So we want to differentiate between saying a person exists versus their existence actually is reflecting their human humanity, right? So when I'm walking around, when I'm talking, when I'm using body language, when I'm when I'm internally experiencing my own um, my own thoughts and feelings, hopes, dreams, memories, etc., those are aspects of my reality, of my existence that actually express my human essence. Those 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 are part of those. Are Those that make me human They are indicative of my humanity They reveal my humanity Whereas if I'm just lying on a bed immobile right, With the cells metabolizing That does not actually reveal my humanity at all So then we have to say a similar distinction with the godly soul It's very nice that you have a godly soul And what can happen for you to lose your godly soul? The answer is nothing You will never lose your godly soul However, just because you don't lose your godly soul doesn't mean your godly soul actually has an existence, meaning that it actually is manifest in any way that reflects or reveals its own godliness. In other words, your godly soul could be a vegetable. Now, most people don't want to be a vegetable. They don't want to be a vegetative state. They want to actually have their existence reflect their humanity. Well, then similar with the godly soul. The godly soul, it's not enough that there is this godly essence in you but that godly essence should somehow be manifest, somehow be present, be experienced. Now that experience, uh, that, that, that experiential side of the godly soul, that is the subject of chapter 3. What does it mean that you have a godly soul? Not as some sort of deep metaphysical truth, but as an actual lived reality. Right? Not, so it's not like, oh, this person lying, lying in the hospital is a person, and therefore we have to treat them as a person. But no, but what does it actually mean to be a person in lived experience? What does it mean to experience life like a person? But in this case, the subject isn't being a person. The subject is being god. godly. So we have to differentiate between god and godly. God is a you know, proper name of someone. Mm-hmm. Godly means that you are like god. You're the same kind of thing.
0: So when we said the thing about the goldfish and how we are... Like, I am as much a goldfish as my father, if my father is a goldfish. Yes. And then we are as much.
1: Godlike.
0: As God is godlike. Right. Uh-huh. But God is an instanti- instantiation of godlikeness.
1: Mm hmm. And you are also. So, you're is an. God is ex- just
0: an arbitrary. Meaning. Like the father goldfish is just as arbitrary as the sun goldfish.
1: Except that one is the resulting from the other. So there, is a, there isn't asymmetry a in that.
0: Right. Relative to each other. But you're right. saying the metaphor ends with God because God doesn't have like
1: a... Right. Okay. Right. Right. The goldfish has a... Right. At the, 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 the godly soul's father is God. God himself doesn't have a father. Whereas the goldfish or human example, that would you know, fail. Right. Until you got back to Adam. Right. Adam would be a father without a father. Okay. Or the first goldfish for that matter. Wouldn't a father without a mother also without Okay. <laughs> I hear what you're saying, but let's let's go. On. Okay. So now Now. What we're going to do is we are going to um, talk about people. So we can hopefully all agree that if a person is lying there in a bed in a vegetative state that although they are a human, their humanity is not revealed. (coughs) We all agree with that? Okay. So I want to do is I want to break people's life up into roughly three stages, okay? The first stage is going to be from birth until um, teenage years. The second stage is teenage years until adulthood, and the third stage is adulthood, okay? Now, I'm not gonna use specific ages because then people are gonna start saying, well, what about this person or that person? Let's we'll just think about stages of development, and that'll make save us some time, okay? What is the goal of childhood?
2: Introduction to the
1: world. Okay. So the goal is that by the end of childhood, what should be the case? But this is important because you're gonna be parents and you wanna know what the goal of childhood is, I know. Childhood is supposed to be idyllic and lovely and you're supposed to have a good no, Childhood is a very serious time and it has a goal and it begins from the moment you're born. What is the goal of childhood? To
0: learning about the world.
1: What? To have a foundation to move to the next stage. Okay, but well, what's that foundation more specific? To be independent of your parents. To be to be able to exist and function in the world. which So you need to learn about the world. That's true. But you also need to learn about yourself. right? The, I, the goal of childhood is to be able to function in the world. So by the time you're done with childhood, you should be able to be?
0: Independent.
1: I don't know. Independent. You see how I'm avoiding the word independent? When do you ever become independent? How
0: can you say like self.
1: What? What? Why can't there be a
2: goal?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Which is why, let's say, your child has reached, I don't know, say age seven and they can't talk. You don't say, Well, childhood is a time just to be? No, like, wait a minute. Like, by now they should have learned how to talk. Something is wrong.
0: It's like the stuff that pediatricians check in on and the stuff that we use to diagnose delays in children with disabilities. Right.
1: The childhood is a By the time you're done with childhood, you should be able to function in the world. In the world in a physical sense, motor sense, linguistically, object recognition, basic social navigation, all these things. Now, that's a lot of the things that children enjoy doing are geared towards that, spending time with people, playing. Some of the things are, are not, like you know, eating their vegetables. Right? But childhood, now, and, and, and in fact, when a child is doing that and doing it well, how does a child f- feel? Fulfilled. Yeah, they feel fulfilled. They feel alive. They feel like they're thriving and flourishing, right? If you, if a child is making strides in learning how to function in the world, the child feels fulfilled. And if that's not happening, and that cannot happen for any number of reasons, it could be medical problems. It could be, God forbid, you know, war and famine. All sorts of things could go wrong, right? Then the child experiences some kind of suffering, God forbid. That makes sense, okay? Now, then, this way, what does it mean to function in the world? What well, we're not, but that's, so that's stage one. They learn to function in the world. Okay. Then, what's the goal of the teenage years? Like nobody's figuring this out. No, that
0: is separating your identity from your parents' identity, being uh, an
1: independent person. Well, see, you, but you already know my my aversion to the word independence. In general. Yeah, because I think independence is one of these overly used word words. It's not I, you're never really truly independent. Can I say
0: independence? What? Responsible
1: for that. Okay, so there's responsibility for actions. There's independence from parents.
0: Discovering yourself.
1: Discovering yourself. Yeah.
0: Like refining the
2: childhood skills more. So maybe like getting into financial, deeper emotional situations that you have to problem solve.
1: Okay, so I want to I want to I want to put it in my words because I think my words are better. Not always, but in this case, which I think comes a lot of the things that you're touching on, which is it shifts the focus from your parents to yourself. So it is not you are part of your parents' lives, it's now that you have your life, which now means a certain amount of autonomy from your parents. It means now you have to have your own relationships. As a child, you're just a aspect of your parents' relationships. See, when you make it all about autonomy, then you kind of, like, one of the things that happens is that when you're in teenage years is that you separate somewhat from your parents and you get really into friends. Well, that's not autonomy, right? That's not independence. You're just, like, switching one person for another. But if you think about what's actually happening is instead of you orbiting your parents, what ends up happening is you become the center of the orbit around you. And so now you have to kind of restructure where do your parents fit in in your life. Where do your friends fit in in your life? That process can be smooth, and it usually is not. It's usually quite messy, right? So there's a shifting of the of the axis of control from your parents to you. So now it becomes your relationships, and now they become, you know, your pa- now it's what role do your parents have in your life? You have a life, and your parents are part of it, right? And then. The same thing can all apply with finances, with the values, and all sorts of things. It's now you have to start having your own relationships with things and not just piggybacking on your parents' relationships. Okay. Does that make sense? Which is why things that really help you thrive and flourish as a child can often be detrimental to being a teenager. Mm-hmm. Right. So remember this when you become a parent. As your child starts becoming a teenager, right, many things that used to work and used to be good for them, they're no longer good for them. What Would be an example of something that is good for child children and bad for teenagers.
0: Time out
1: in the corner. <laughs> Time out in the corner even children at a certain point like that that's very age and temperament specific. out with your friends. I would say that's also age and, you know, <laughs> and culture specific. Yeah.
0: Making choices for you?
1: Making choices for you? And choices of consequence, not choices of, you know, what, what do, like, which shoes do you want to wear is not a choice of consequence. Right? Um, but there are choices of consequence. And children, right. right, the idea is that they don't make choices of consequence. Who makes the choices of consequence? Parents. Their parents. And in teenagers, the goal is that at the end of that, you should be capable of making choices of consequence in a way that is proper. We can debate later what proper is. Okay, so you start developing your own relationships. Okay, and that means that things which are which were, which were like non issues become issues. Okay, so all of a sudden, feelings and and um, who's in control all of a sudden becomes these become huge issues, and uh, as you ex- as you manifest your humanity in this new stage, that just really weren't as a child. Now what's the final stage?
2: Adulthood.
1: Okay, so what's 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 the goal of adulthood? Do what you parents. Okay, so you now functional. And you're not just functional, but you have your own life, right?
0: What? Can you talk about why that's not autonomy or independence?
1: Because If you take a person and you and you and you want to help them and they want to like move successfully through the through through teenage years, they need to learn a certain degree of autonomy. What real? But it's not about autonomy per se. It's about how do I have relationships with other people? Okay. How do I have relationships with values? How do I have relationships with social expectations in a way that I am not the the the. Um, the supporting character in some other thing going on. How do I, how do I, how can it be my story? And also at the same time, have these kinds of relationships and interactions. And so there is an element of autonomy, but if you take this idea of autonomy to the extreme, that's not really the case. I mean, take a person who's going through teenage years and they make their goal to be completely autonomous. So that means not relying on anybody for anything. No, it means learning how to decide which people you're gonna rely on and for what. Right? That's the thing. Oh, I'm not going to rely on parents. i rely on my friends. You guys are actually, maybe my friends are not the most reliable people. Maybe I should have relied on my parents. But not by default, but out of choice. Right? So they've graduated from teenage years when you start voluntarily turning to your parents for their wisdom. Right? When you're a child, you don't to turn to them for their wisdom because just by default, they're the ones that are the ones they're controlling and they're setting the, they're setting the tone for everything. Right. And there is some breaking away of that and having to figure this stuff out. But eventually, you know, again, this is not always the case, but usually, you know, people who've lived longer and know you tend to have a kind of wisdom. And so at some point you realize that that wisdom might actually be worthwhile. And I'm now going to voluntarily bring that into my life. So is there an element of autonomy? Yeah. But it's not the pursuit of autonomy per se, because if it's the pursuit of autonomy per se, then out in the outside influence would be bad. I mean, I want to figure it all out for myself. I don't want to rely. On, I don't want to get advice. So while you're still like fighting for autonomy, you're not you're you're not you haven't finished the stage.
0: You're saying living off the grid is not the goal.
1: That's right. Okay. okay. So then what's adulthood? What is adulthood about?
2: Taking what you've learned and everything that you've done huh. and passing it on when you get married
1: and have children. Okay. Okay. Let's broaden it but that is an aspect of it. Adulthood is about that your life is very good. You're functional. And you have your relationships and you can navigate them and you can control them. But what makes your life worth living is not how things benefit you, but something beyond yourself. In other words, this is the idea that the purpose of life is not, <coughs> is not located within me. It's located outside of me, beyond me. Now, can I really have that awareness of something that transcends myself if I don't even have a fully functional self? And there's no, that self doesn't have a locus of control, the ability to decide who and what enters my life and how. No, I can't do that. So there's this, these three stages of progression. What?
2: A teenager can't realize that the purpose of life is beyond me.
1: So the way to think about this is, is that you're not a machine, okay? Um, you know what a, an, an assembly line is a great way to make a car and it's a lousy way to make a person? Do you know who came up with the idea of dividing people by age and putting them in grades as a method of education? The Germans. Yeah. <laughs> who else would think that an assembly line is a good way to actually produce a human being? So when I say stages, when I say stages, obviously it's not like you flip a switch and then something happens, right? These stages bleed into each other. It's like when, when psychologists talk about stages of grief, for instance, right? It's not like... One day you're like done with denial and you move on to anger. No. There's moving forward, moving back. Things you know, are, are integrated within each other. Um, right? And so you usually have remnants of childhood into teenage years and sometimes even into when you're really being an adult. But what is the main focus of your life when you, in one sense, it's all about bringing out this humanity, not just being a vegetable, but there is a different focus during childhood years versus teenagers versus adult years. But at the same time, it's not like it's, not like it's a hard switch. Right? Although someone that has really, truly um, you know, mastered these earlier stages and have them in an integrated way, has a much stronger base to then go much deeper in a subsequent stage. Yeah.
2: Um, and also-
1: As a parent, I think that's really bad. I think it's a horrible idea. Yeah,
2: I, I, to, split
1: to split them up according to age. Yeah. Are there any systems
2: that don't?
1: The old, the old traditional Jewish education system did not. Um,
0: Montessori doesn't?
1: Yeah. I don't know much about Montessori, but the old traditional system was that when a child was ready to learn to read, they went to a teacher that taught them how to read and they stayed there it's like I mean I have kids and I mean I had one of one of my children taught himself how to basically taught himself how to read before his class did and he taught himself how to read Rashi script around the same time and I have other kids that that like they're, they're like at least two years behind in their reading and you just see that kids have different temperaments and different things and and you can average things and averaging things are very good and you know you can get a lot through averaging but if you're actually treating everyone as an individual you know especially when you do things you have to have cutoffs right so it turns out that if you're born at the end of the cutoff you have more in common with the year ahead of you or the year below you than you do with your peers right uh, it, it, it's you know when you, want to, when you want to educate masses of people in the most efficient way so you can you know, have a consumer society or an industrial society, it might be very good. But if you want to actually build up people's humanity, it actually does a lot to... It's well, so frustrating for a three-year-old child to sit in a classroom where he could to
0: read but he has
1: to wait until he says... That's right. And it's equally frustrating for so someone so- who can't read yeah, exactly. and everyone else can read and now he needs... Spe- and, and the thing is, he's it's not, it's not the only one. There could be like five or six of them. <laughs> But they're all, right, yeah. and then you have other sorts of other things, so yeah. Um, I'm not going to now say I have a perfect solution, but, but yeah, that's, the, the, it does require a rethinking of exactly the relationship between teacher and student, and how you prepare, how you, what, what, what methods you use for teaching, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah?
0: When we do things um, that are, like, not critical to development, so like, for instance, if I learned how to knit, and like, that could happen at any stage, is that just like totally outside of this? Conversation because I feel like we do like a lot of our time is spent doing things that aren't like developing myself, finding my locus of well, power. Well,
1: well, the thing is like this th- this is something that, that's very important is that the, ver- the very same action can and often is entirely has very different meaning depending on which stage of development you're in and how well you're doing that stage of development and therefore the role it serves, which is why learning to knit can be you know um, part of the teenage years. In terms of, you know, somebody, you know, is going through learning how to like manage their, the difficulties of having to be responsible for your own relationships and how do you manage the stress and the angst in that. And, you know, they, and sometimes that's why there's even things like occupational therapy, and, you know, where they're actually taught to do things like knitting for that express purpose. And then there's like, you know, back in the shtetl when they taught little girls to knit because if you don't learn how to knit, you're not going to have clothes, and it's that simple, right? And then, then it's just a practical skill that you know you should learn when you're six or seven, because why not learn it earlier and be good at it, right? So the, the 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 activity that you do, the behavior that you do, is not really a good guide as to what stage you're in.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and sometimes it is, like if you're learning to walk, then clearly that's learning about you know, and that's why like, sometimes it's humiliating for somebody who like has an accident. And now they have to learn how to walk again, right? There's an element so. of human... It's like as if they're back in childhood, and in a certain sense, at least when it comes to their legs, they are. Um, but yeah, but most of the actions that most of us do most of the time, it's very hard to tell from the action alone what, what role it's really playing. Yeah.
0: Do we, but do we give meaning to all of our actions to be part of this process, or are there things that we do... And I'm not talking about like mundane, like brushing your teeth, but like, are there things that we spend a lot of time in that don't really fit into this development? Well, trajectory?
1: let me put it this way. Every action either serves to further your development or hinder it. Whether you're consciously choosing to do the actions for those reasons, is, that's a different question. Okay.
0: But everything is affecting this process.
1: Yes. Yeah. Something's more extreme and something's less extreme. Okay. All right. So the idea, and this is going to set up, the, is that we are going to have a similar thing. The godly soul actually having, being a reality in our lives and not just present, like the humanity is present in someone who's in a vegetative state. That's a process of development, and there are basically three stages that kind of parallel the stages of being a child, being a teenager, being an adult. The technical names for these might be familiar to people, especially if you were here before the winter program. They are known as nefesh, ruach, and neshama. And these stages, the nefesh is when the godly soul's learning is developed to the point that it can actually navigate around in the world, kind of like childhood. Ruach is where the godly soul is actually developing its, um, its, its own relationships, its own feelings. Um, and neshama is when the godly soul becomes aware of what's, tra- what's transcendent, what's beyond itself. Um, very briefly, and we'll, we'll elaborate a little bit this in, this, in the next class, that means that the main focus of the level of the godly soul, called nefesh, is on connecting to God through our behavior, through doing the right kinds of things, not the wrong things. The main focus of the ruach is how does the intensity of the emotional experience serve to connect me to God rather than separate me from God. And the neshama is about connecting to God in a way that transcends my individuality, my, what makes me special, me unique, but rather connects to God um, so to speak for who he is on his terms. Now, can you, can you repeat
2: the middle one? Ruach,
1: it's connecting to God through the intensity of the emotional experience. Okay. Now, we're not going to elaborate a lot on that because I did it before, but the idea is that these are steps, these are stages of how the godly soul is manifest. So, if a person, if a person's godly soul isn't manifest at all, it's like a, You know, going back to the analogy of a a person when they're in a vegetative state, their humanity is there but not manifest. If the godly soul is manifest in any way, its manifestation can be classified into one of these three stages, nefesh, ruach, neshama, and they are distinct stages on the one hand, and yet they have elements of each stage, has elements of the other one, much like the stages of the development of a person. Okay? Just for one important note, and then I'll ask a question and we'll end most of us for the entirety of our lives are basically going to be functioning on the first stage and the way you can tell this is that sinning or not sinning is a issue in your life then you haven't yet fully mastered the art of functioning in the world as a godly being if you've mastered that then the issue of sinning becomes irrelevant to you so yeah nishama Neshama is where you're connecting to God not based on what may, on your individuality but ba- based on who and what God is. And so it transcends you know, whatever distinguishes you as an individual. Yeah.
2: Thank you. yeah. But you can operate like,
1: in a mix of the three. Like, you right. can have love for God but still see God. Well, we're going to talk about that. Um, but the, but the, 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 the issue is not whether you can have love or not have love. The question <laughs> yeah. is... What is the goal of the stage of life you're in? So for instance, if you just take go, take a child. If you take a child and try to get a child to deal with the issues that a teenager is supposed to deal with, what happens to the child? They're,
2: they're
1: That's right. What happens if you take someone who really need their, their godly soul needs to develop and needs to to the point that they can navigate in a godly way in the world. And that's something that they're still struggling with and you try to get them to connect to God in a way that goes beyond that. So it's not that there's no emotion, um, but they're, they're, gonna, they're, they're, they're not going to respond well. They'll probably have a nervous breakdown. Okay? This is why that people that are usually on this level of Ruach, their lives look very um, odd to the rest of us. So I'll give you one example. Um, what would you say about somebody who spent all of their time isolated from society in a cave and only came home on Shabbos? Would you say that they're living a you know kind of life that you would aspire to? No. Why not? Because they want
0: to be a part of the world.
1: Right. In that similar sense, that's what happens if you try and if you so. Now, if being part of the world in a godly way is something that is a, is a non-issue, it's something that you've completely mastered, then all sorts of new horizons open up to you, and at that point you might see something different about living in a cave and only coming home on Shabbos. In much the same way why a lot of times we tell children when they ask about teenager or adult things, we say in one way or another that <laughs> when you're older you'll be able to understand, but right now there is, I, I can't really explain to you, you don't have the ability to appreciate that kind of an existence and those kinds of issues. Which is why you shouldn't emulate those kinds of people and do those kinds of things. So it's not that there's no emotion, but the emotion is itself not the, not the goal, because if the intensity of the emotional experience is the goal, um, living in a cave is actually quite a good way to go about it. The kind of intense emotional experience you can get for God living in a cave and all the coming on our far surpass what you'll be able to do when you're like living what we so-called a normal life. I'm not recommending you go live in a cave. I'm just pointing out the difference. Yes, and I have to. Go. Why? So is it because is
2: it the fact that we all live in a mechesh
1: state that really do not promote that kind of Correct, living? for but the most if, part. like, if if we could all live in that state, that would be
2: great. No. 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 To not. I know, but
1: we're gonna. We'll... So the, remember, remember what I said. Remember what I said about anatomy. In anatomy, you don't make judgment calls. You just describe. I am going to, I'm going to, as much as possible, avoid making normative statements of what should or shouldn't be. Just describing. This is what is. This, is. this is a fact. There are some souls that their development, their manifestation, the, the reality of their presence is that, is that they're, they're like teenagers with God rather than children with God. Or adults with God rather than teenagers with God. And therefore their lives and what makes sense Is going to be very, very, very different than for people who are just children with God. And again, the sign of being a child is that the issue of whether you're able to navigate the world in a godly way is up for question. Just like a child, it's 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 up for question. Do they have the skills to actually, you know, do everything from get dressed to like, you know, get to school on time? Or why are you asking? You wanna know if you can throw it away? Well, that and also just curious. I'm not gonna throw it it's away. It's not written out, no, it ain't it, it, It's not written out. The holache is that anything that has words